So tonight I would like to speak about the four Brahma Viharas, um, and in a way, kind of just give an overview because certain of them, particularly compassion and equanimity, will be talking about in a lot greater depth. So the first of these states that form our best home, of course, is metta, or loving kindness, which I think in many ways forms a foundation of understanding for all of the rest. Metta, or loving kindness, I think can almost best be seen as a quality of our attention or awareness rather than a particular level of feeling or emotion or sentimentality. So when we think of it as an emotion that so many of the fears arise about what it might mean to be a loving person. And people often say, well, I don't know about developing a loving heart, because if I do that, I'll end up just allowing people to hurt me and abuse me, and I'll just kind of smile and say, well, I'm developing a loving heart. I'll let other people be hurt or abused or oppressed, and I'll just have that smile on my face and won't do anything to try to make anything different, to make a better situation in our own lives or in the world. And I often think how sad it is that our sense of love has degenerated to such an extent that we can kind of think of it as a little bit foolish or or silly, like that Hallmark greeting card. Or, um, one person actually said to me once that he absolutely detested metta practice because it reminded him of a, a continually enforced Valentine's Day. You know, like on the count of three, you will be filled with love no matter what you want, no matter what you're actually feeling. You'll just take maybe some very turbulent, conflicted feelings and cover them over with that nice little veneer of of seeming love or sentimentality. And really, it doesn't mean that at all. Metta, as I'm sure you've heard, most literally as a translation, means friendship. It's almost like a sense of kinship that reflects back the truth of our connection, whether we like someone or not, whether we're going to try to strongly change their behavior or not, whether we're going to strongly try to change our own behavior or not. The, the bedrock understanding is this sense of connection rather than alienation or separation. And so I think of it more than a feeling or an emotion, I think of it as a view or a vision of life. It's like sometimes here, sitting in front of a room full of people, I think, okay, How many of us are actually here right now? It's all of us. But what if we added all the people, say, we sent metta to today? The benefactors and the friends, the friends who are having a good time and the friends who are having a hard time. What if they were all here too? And we added together everyone who'd ever inspired us in such a way that we thought to come to this retreat everyone who told us about their own meditation practice or read us a poem or, or gave us a book, what if they were all here too? 
and all the people who'd ever hurt us to such a degree that we were almost forced to look for a deeper meaning of happiness. What if they were all here too? It starts to get to be a bigger and bigger network of conditions and influences and relationships that are represented in this moment in time. I mean, would I be here now if I hadn't gone to India? Would if I have gone to India if I hadn't gone to the State University of New York at Buffalo? You know, you have the population of Buffalo, New York here with me, you know, and just on and on and on and on into these incredible networks that is really the truth of this moment. Sometimes I use the illustration of on our 20th anniversary some years ago now at IMS, we decided to have a party. And since we moved in in February and you can't really necessarily have a party in February, it's better to have a retreat in February than a party, uh, we moved it to the summer. And part of the summer celebration for that event was to plant a tree, which is still down there in the garden. And, you know, you can go down there and look at it and see just a tree. That's a truthful experience. But you can also look at it, look at that tree, and get a sense of the earth, which is nurturing it, and all the people who for centuries have stewarded this plot of land. And you can get a sense of the, the sunlight and the moonlight and the rain that is nourishing that tree and everything that affects the quality of the air and of the rain and all of those influences. And you can get a sense of the you know, history of this center and all the people who have come through and the, and the effort that has gone into maintaining it. The tree was planted that summer by a teenager. We have one retreat here every year for teenagers called the Young Adults Course. And you can look at that tree and get a sense of that person who, who planted it and the influences on her life that made her come into meditation practice at such a young age. There's a way of looking at that tree which implies that network of relationship that sees that tree as embedded in a much vaster picture of life. And that is really the vision of metta. It's that recognition that none of us stands alone, none of us could be alone in the, the actuality of this universe. And so as a, a faculty of awareness, it has to do with that kind of openness. It has to do with a complete awareness or attention so that we can recognize beyond the surface appearance of things. I have a friend who once went, when we were living in India, he went to visit Sikkim, to visit the very eminent uh, monk, Tibetan monk, known as the Karmapa. This was the 16th Karmapa. The 17th Karmapa, his successor, so to speak, um, was in the news some years ago because as a 14-year-old boy, he escaped from uh, Tibet over into India. But this was the previous Karmapa, who was an extremely renowned, eminent monk. And my friend said that when he got there, the Karmapa greeted him as though his appearance was just about the most important thing that had ever happened to the Karmapa in his life, which 
I believe it was not. <laughs> but he said that he did that not through great pomp and circumstance or, or grandiose flourishes. He gave that impression to my friend by paying absolute, complete attention to him. So that my friend said that the subjective experience of that was one of being completely loved. And when he told me that story, my first response was to think about all the many conversations I have where I'm kind of there and kind of thinking about the next thing I need to do or the next person I need to talk about. And I thought, you know, it wouldn't take that much just to actually arrive. And that that fullness, that wholeheartedness of presence, of attention, is like a gift of love. That's how it's felt to be. It's also, metta is also a faculty of attention in that its, its vehicle is attention. When we pay attention to parts of ourselves, we've really tried to deny in the past. When we pay attention to other people that we have overlooked or we've looked through, that is the, the vehicle for connection. Once we actually pay attention, the, the sense of connection will naturally arise. Almost my favorite part of the practice is the part that we're going to begin tomorrow when we begin to offer loving kindness to someone known as a neutral person. And the neutral person, I think, is a wonderful example of how loving kindness really is a factor of attention or awareness. A neutral person is somebody we don't particularly like or dislike. We just feel kind of neutral about them. And what's so amazing is that if we come up with a person that we consider kind of neutral and begin offering them metta over time, simply because we have considered that person, we've wished them well, we've held them in the light of attention, we really do begin to care about them. On retreat, we often suggest that you try to find somebody here that you have not yet formed a judgment about in terms of liking or disliking. And it's so interesting because if that is the person that you choose, even over the few days that we have left, you will probably see a difference. And this difference may not come through a great rush of feeling but just a kind of welcoming inside or a sense of kinship. If you don't have somebody here, then often we say, well, choose somebody who plays a role in your life of some kind. Check out person at the supermarket, gas station attendant, bank teller, somebody that you don't know very well. And again, it's really amazing. My favorite story about that had to do with um, this time. We teach this retreat here every year, and a friend of mine sat it one year. And then I didn't see her again for 
several months until I was teaching another retreat about six months later in New Mexico. And she came up to me in New Mexico, all kind of beaming and shiny, and she said to me, I've fallen in love with my dry cleaner. (laughs) And I said, really? That's very nice. (laughs) And then she said, no, no, not romantically, but he was my neutral person back in that retreat I did in Barry. And she said, every day when I meditate, I hold him in my heart and I wish him well. And she said, now I go into the store and it's like, I really want to see how he's doing and I really care. And, you know, it's like he's like a friend. It's like a secret love. And what's so amazing to me about that is that it's not because he has done her an enormous good deed, although he might, one presume, be a perfectly fine dry cleaner, but it's not out of a sense of indebtedness. And it's not because she knows the particular sorrows or yearnings of his life and, and so feels that kind of movement of the heart. It's just because she's paying attention to him every day by holding him in her heart rather than looking right through him as though he were an object. So this happened, I don't know, like six or seven years ago. And then a couple of years ago, I was... Um, writing an article for a magazine, and I wanted to use that story, and I happened to run into her. So I asked her permission to use the story and use her name, and, and this was, you know, at least five years after it all happened, and she said, oh, yeah, you know, certainly use my name, and she said, you know, I still go into the store, and it still really means something to me that he's doing okay. That's really where the proof of the practice happens, and how we relate to ourselves and how we are relating to others as we, as we move through life. It's that sense of connection rather than feeling so separate and apart and alone and afraid. It comes through actually opening our field of attention so that we can connect. And I also want to say about metta that it's very real. You know, it's not something pretentious, it's not something um, grandiose. Its expression might be very simple, its expression might be silent, but it's a very real force because of that gathering of our energy. We have a, a friend, a colleague named Kamala Masters, who told me this story once. She said that she was sailing with some friends in Hawaii and she got quite seasick. So her friends urged her to get out of the boat and just get into the water to soak in the water and feel a little bit better. She didn't really want to do that, but she did that. And just when she got into the water, you know, a few friends got in there to keep her company. And then this huge gust of wind came and blew the sailboat away. (laughs) So the friends who'd gotten into the water with her were trying to cheer her up, and they'd say things to her like, Kamala, you know, what if this is the last moment of your life? (laughs) You know, what would you like right now? You know, would you like great love and great compassion to fill your being and you know, what would you like right now? And she thought a moment, and she said, what I really would like right now is for the boat to come back. (laughs) You know, and sometimes it's like that. What we want is for the boat to come back. We want some really practical help. We want some, something to, to directly 
and touch our fear and, and help us. And love actually can be that, not as a concept, you know, not as some seemingly helpful friend saying, well, what would you like right now if you were dying? But from that inner confidence that there is a source of, of togetherness and connection that is not dependent on circumstances. So much of what we get pleasure from in life is very circumstantial. And we're fortunate, many of us, in that the circumstances of our lives afford that. But since everything changes all of the time, if we are dependent on the particular pleasure that we want to either happen or to be sustained, of course, we're kind of in trouble. And we're very vulnerable. The quality of metta is something that is, is a stability. It's a steadfastness that we can always touch, no matter what the circumstance. The Buddha, I think, said quite beautifully, develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space, which cannot be painted, cannot be marred, cannot be ruined. Develop a mind so filled with love it resembles space. Like if somebody were to stand here in the middle of the room and just throw paint in the air, there's nowhere in the space for the paint to land. And so whether it's a really garish mistake or a particularly well-chosen color, it's not going to matter. That much openness, that much vastness, that's the potential of the human mind in the power of love. And that's metta. It's born out of either seeing the good in someone, including ourselves, or recognizing that all beings everywhere want to be happy. It can be born out of many things, but these are the two uh, strongest springboards for the force of metta to arise, seeing the good in someone. Or there are certainly times when that is just not going to happen. It's like wanting the boat, you know? then it's recognizing that all beings do want to be happy, that we all share this urge toward happiness, toward wholeness. And it's because of ignorance that that urge toward happiness gets distorted and twisted, and we do so very many things that are terrible mistakes in that pursuit of happiness. But the actual urge is a good thing. It's not something to feel squeamish about or ashamed of. That all beings want to be happy, and in fact, all beings deserve to be happy. We begin sometimes with trying to look for the good in someone. And this is a very powerful exercise. If we imagine that it means deluding ourselves and pretending and entering this cloud of of make-believe that we're going to overlook some very real and grave difficulties, then um, it's just a mistaken notion. What it actually does is allow us to form a sense of connection so that we can then honestly and directly look at what might be difficult in a relationship. When I was first practicing in Burma, which is a very traditional context for practicing, I got to a point where 
uh, my teacher, Saira Upandita, said to me, start to look for the good in people. Even if it's one tiny little sliver of good, maybe one nice thing they said or kind thing they did, even if it's just a little itsy-bitsy little thing. So I went back to my room. My first thought was, I don't want to do that. I thought, that's what stupid people do. You know, they just kind of go around looking for the good in people. And I thought, I don't even like people who are like that, you know? They're just, they're so stupid. And I thought, I'm not going to do that. But as I tell the story, I was in a very traditional setting in a Burmese monastery far from home. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional country like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something and you say, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, <laughs> I don't feel like doing it. You do it. So I did it. And much to my amazement, it actually worked. It worked in precisely the way he suggested it would work. That even begrudgingly remembering <laughs> the one good thing, I could think about some very difficult people, and they were there made me have a sense that we're somehow standing side by side rather than across this tremendous gulf of separation. So that's the potential in doing that kind of reflection, looking for the good or remembering that all beings really do want to be happy. And that's metta. The second of the Brahma-viharas is that of compassion, which is the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to suffering. If the primary reflection or perception in life for metta to arise is seeing the good, then the primary springboard for compassion to arise is seeing suffering. It's being able to open to suffering, not disregard it, not look the other way, not act like it's not there, but actually pay attention to it. Compassion also is a quality that has a sort of ebullience to it or sufficiency. It's a sense of sufficiency. It's not the same really as being broken by the suffering that we see. Because if that were the case, then our energy would simply be depleted. We wouldn't have the kind of energy that would have us go forward and try to make a difference to actually help somebody My primary example of compassion uh, in many ways is the Dalai Lama. A few years ago, some of you perhaps were there, Uh, he was in New York City, and after several days of teaching in a theater, he gave a public talk in Central Park, and a very good friend of ours actually set up the whole thing, and her main consideration was really wanting to get a lot of people in the park and a lot of kinds of people in the park. And uh, The day before he was about to speak, it poured rain. But the day of the talk, it had cleared up. I went walking toward the park wondering, okay, how many people are really going to be there? And I couldn't see anybody, but I could hear the sound of Tibetan chanting off in the distance. So I went toward it. I turned a corner and there was an ocean of people. The, the um, State Department, which provided his security, estimated 250,000 people. So it was enormous numbers of people. Just everywhere your eye could land, there were people who'd come to hear him speak. And 
we sat there in a very special kind of quiet, given how many people there were waiting for him to talk. And when he began, he started with a statement that I found quite startling, which was, from a certain point of view, I haven't had such an easy life. He said, I had to assume temporal power when I was 16. I had to flee into exile in my early 20s. I've had to lead a community in exile, trying to keep the culture intact for all of these years. I've had to hear daily of the um, torture and the, the terrible events happening in Tibet. He said, it hasn't been such an easy life. And then he looked at us and he said, but I'm pretty happy. <laughs> and of course, that's what one sees in him. He doesn't look very morose, you know. He looks pretty happy. And he went on to say, the reason that I'm pretty happy is because of the force of compassion. He said, compassion makes me feel at one with others. So that, you know how our culture so often can tell us that pain is wrong and suffering is wrong. And if you're unhappy, if you're hurting, if you're afraid, you have to hide it. And if you're sick or you're old or you're dying, it's bad. It's like you made a mistake. And, you know, and how difficult it is to, to experience pain without adding isolation. And here he's talking about a vision of life that's very different, where our vulnerability to suffering, which we all share in terms of a vulnerability, is something that connects us to one another so that the force of compassion can unite us and that feeling of being at one with others rather than so separate and so apart itself is a kind of happiness. That's why compassion is not considered to be something that will drain our energy as we open to the suffering, but it's something that will allow us to extend more energy because of that that kind of strength, almost of joy in a, a strange way, in that, that feeling of, of being so close to others. And it's often confusing. It's not that easy to understand. And yet... It's also possible through the the depth of our awareness to come to understand those distinctions and to go forward building the strength of compassion. Very often, one of the difficulties we have with compassion is that we really feel we can't do enough. We can't make the pain go away. We can't make the situation all okay. We can't press erase, you know, and have some whole scenario be deleted. That life just isn't like that. And that is, is part of the, the way that wisdom needs to inform our compassion. That that recognition that we're not in control of the unfolding of events shouldn't be the gateway to apathy or feeling defeated or resignation or giving up, but rather it's that understanding that has the potential to allow our compassion to really be boundless, 
because it becomes a kind of presence and openness and truthfulness in our care that isn't going to demand that we be in charge and that everything be okay. I'll talk more about that with equanimity. The third of the Brahmaviharas is sympathetic joy, the ability to take delight in the happiness of others. And here the, the proximate cause or the nearest arising condition is actually being able to open to joy. And you can see that, that compassion and sympathetic joy also balance one another out. If compassion allows us to open to suffering, sympathetic joy allows us to open to joy, which is its own kind of challenge sometimes. And it means an understanding of happiness or joy as something other than a limited commodity. Because if we feel it to be a limited commodity, we're going to feel that the more someone else has, the less there's going to be for us. And so we feel pretty bad when we watch somebody else go forward, have success, have good fortune, as though something has been stolen from us. Whereas really, if we pay attention, we see that happiness is not that limited commodity, that it's available. It's something other than stuff. It's not an object. The Dalai Lama here also said something uh, really fun and interesting. He said, it only makes sense to develop happiness in other beings' happiness. Because then you're increasing your chance of being happy six billion to one. And he said, those are very good odds. And I thought about it, and I thought, you know, that's right. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to spend any money. All you have to do is think of someone else's happiness and be happy. And there you are. You know, they went out and did whatever it was. And that's really true. But of all these qualities, it is sometimes said that sympathetic joy can be the most difficult. Metta, the the cultivation or the development of metta, is largely a question of paying attention, learning how to pay attention in a different way. Compassion, generally speaking, you know, we're not really cruel people. It's not that we want somebody to suffer more and more and more. Often, the, the obstacle or the difficulty with compassion is either we don't see something as suffering... We see it as bad or wrong, whether it's within or without, rather than seeing it as a state of suffering, or we feel we can't bear it. And so we fall into that kind of of sense of being overcome. But if we can recognize the strength we do have and can pay attention, then very often compassion will arise. But sympathetic joy really means a big letting go of that kind of hoarding and clinging mentality. When I was practicing in Burma and doing sympathetic joy practice, Upandita said to me once, okay, now imagine you're sitting in a room full of people, and one of the people is someone you don't like. 
And they're sitting in a chair over there in the corner. And everyone else in the room is someone you do like and admire. And they are all heaping praise upon this person that you don't like. (laughs) And then he looked at me and he said, now how do you feel? (laughs) And I thought, no, there was a test. But while it is sometimes difficult, I think we all can understand the extraordinary beauty of that quality because we know what it feels like when it's directed toward us. You know what it's like when something really good happens for you in your life and some people are so happy for you? And what a beautiful moment that is as you feel their energy and their delight and how other people might come up to you and I mean, sure, they might smile, but you know, you know. They're not too pleased that this wonderful thing just happened for you and how terrible that really does feel. So the support of nature of sympathetic joy is really very strong. It's a tremendous kind of generosity. So we know what it feels like. And actually, compassion is often our conduit for it. You know, when we look at somebody and we begrudge, their happiness, usually it's because we forget, and we've forgotten how much suffering there can be in life, even in that person's life. And, you know, and, and we're kind of living in this dreamscape of they've got everything and I've got nothing. But really, life is full of constant change. Everything is changing all of the time. And what we have can go, what we don't have can come. It's all constantly moving and changing. It's very fluid. We use compassion to actually allow the, the space for sympathetic joy to arise, to remember this person, like all beings, is vulnerable. They, like everybody, want to be happy. And we also use a kind of understanding of generosity. In fact, all of these practices, loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy, are like generosity practices. It's like generosity of the heart rather than in material form, although you know it may manifest in that way as well, but it's really about the spirit of it or the, the essence of it. We give when we have a sense of inner abundance, And even in in material giving, this is the truth. I think we all know people or have been in circumstances in this country or in another country, another culture, where people who have very, very little materially will still be very generous and they'll give. There's something about their inner sense of what they have that allows them to share, to open, to relinquish. And that was certainly... Our experience, for example, in Burma, where people who were very, very poor would come to offer us food. Because in Burma, actually, in that particular monastery, the people coming to meditate don't pay anything. They don't pay for room and board, for example, because everything is donated by people. And so sometimes it's a person... Sometimes it's a family. Sometimes it's a whole village that will come together to feed the meditators. And um, every morsel of food you eat is given to you by somebody. And they come to watch you eat because it's like their greatest joy that 
they could have offered food to someone who was meditating, and, and they're really poor. And so we'd be there and experience that and be the recipient of that, and then sometimes come back to this country, you know, and it was so amazing where people could have so much and not have that inner sense that they can give, that they can open, that they can share. And, you know, you come to the realization through that kind of experience that it really is an inner state. So what is that feeling of inner abundance? That our energy, our offering, our care, our metta, it's worth something. That's the reflection that actually allows us to give unstintingly. And that is what sympathetic joy really is about. And in the mystery of of generosity, with sympathetic joy, you know, the more you delight in the happiness of others, the more delight you have yourself. And so it's like you are replenishing through that offering. And it takes a certain amount of courage to do that kind of letting go and really recognize that nothing is being stolen from you in someone else's happiness. Someone else's happiness is not a threat to your happiness. It really is your happiness. So that's the practice of sympathetic joy. And then the last of these is equanimity, which I'd always puzzled over. Like, what's that doing in there? You know, the first three seem to tie together so nicely. And even when I was practicing in Burma, I thought, well, why? You know, it seems so different. But actually, I see equanimity now as the underpinning of the other three. Equanimity doesn't mean indifference, and it doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean withholding. It doesn't mean a kind of sullenness you know, that says, I don't care. Equanimity actually means balance of mind. It's a kind of spaciousness of mind that is the voice of wisdom. It's wisdom which tells us that life will always have pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute, as the Buddha talked about it in terms of the eight vicissitudes. He said, there is no one's life that has only pleasure and no pain. And no one's life that has only praise and no blame. Life itself, the fabric of life itself, is those kinds of changing states all of the time. I was once hiking with some friends in Northern California, and we had decided, we were in a state park, and we decided that we were going to hike in for a few days, like three days. And then on the fourth day, we were going to turn around and retrace our steps coming out along the very same path. This was the third day, so we were still hiking in, and it turned out to be a day of many, many hours, very constant, steady, unremitting downhill walking. And at one point, the person I was walking with and I, it's like, we were struck by the simultaneous realization and we both just stopped in our tracks. And we turned to one another and he said to me, 
In a dualistic universe, downhill can only mean one thing. <laughs> and sure enough, he was right. Because the very next day, when we turned around to retrace our steps, it was many, many, many hours of very constant, steady uphill walking. On a certain level, certainly not on all levels, but on a certain level, it is a dualistic universe where there is pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. It's the nature of things. And that understanding doesn't need to have us feel like giving up. It doesn't mean we don't try. It doesn't mean we don't try for others as well to make a better life or make a better world. It means that our trying is infused with understanding, with wisdom, so that we don't feel betrayed by the unfolding of events, so that we don't give up when we don't get the immediate results that we think we should have. It means that when we offer loving kindness, it can really be more of a pure gift without that agenda You know, like, may you be happy by tomorrow night, you know, in the way I think you should be happy. It really can be a gift. And when we offer compassion, we actually can sustain that offering so our hearts don't break when we can't make the pain go away. So that we don't feel like we have personally failed. And we actually can offer sympathetic joy when we have some equanimity because that allows us to let go of that sense of of limitation. And if we can grab onto some happiness and hold it, it will be ours forevermore. And we can understand the bigger picture of life, which is this realm of constant change. This is our experience, is that everything is moving and changing all of the time outside of our control. So when we say, may you be happy, we say that with the full understanding that happiness needs to be something other than seizing pleasure and resenting pain. That wisdom actually moves throughout our our phrases, our understanding. It's not dullness and it's not indifference but it's clarity. It allows us to keep going many, many times when we thought we just might not be able to. When we first opened the center all those years ago, we received two letters that were remarkable for how they were addressed. Instead of the Insight Meditation Society, the first was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. (laughs) And for a while, that was my favorite. I really liked that so much. I thought, I used to look at that envelope and think, what were they thinking? (laughs) And my mind went everywhere to a kind of dehydrated kit where you added water and you got instant meditation. (laughs) But the other letter, the other envelope, ultimately came to be my very favorite, and that was the one that was addressed to the Hindsight Meditation Society. (laughs) And... I believe very strongly in the Hindsight Meditation Society and, and its role in, in the uncovering of wisdom because there have been so many times in my life, in my spiritual life, my meditative life, 
where I have practiced and practiced and practiced and it seemed like nothing was happening. And it's only been later, looking back in hindsight, that I've looked at that period and I've said, you know what, that was really important. It seemed like nothing was happening, but somehow I was forming the foundation in that particular time for this other thing to happen. Or that was a really painful, difficult time. But it opened me in some way that proved to be very important. I never could have known at the time. And there have been so many times in my life, and I think this is something that we commonly experience, where I have done something to try to make a difference, to be of help to somebody. I've said something or done something or given something, and it seemed to go nowhere. Only later, when we're lucky, do we hear that, oh yeah, this has happened to me so many times. Somebody says, oh, you know, you gave me that book, and to tell you the truth, it meant nothing to me. (laughs) But, you know, five years later, this other thing happened, and I read it again. And it really helped. I just want to thank you. Or, you know when you said that thing to me, and I really resented it, Now, looking back, I see that even though I hated it when you said it, it was important because it set in motion this other chain of events or so many things like that where we only come to understand if we do at all, in hindsight, the ways that our actions ripple out and have influence and effect in ways that we could never understand or the scope in which we could, we could hardly imagine sometimes. And so that kind of patience, that ability to let go of attachment to result, that really long-term perspective, all of that is the fruit of equanimity that says, as a human being, I will show up, I will do absolutely everything I can, energetically and in terms of action, to express that force of love, toward myself and toward others, compassion and sympathetic joy, and I'll let go. Because that is really the freedom that allows all of those states to be existing in their pure form and to be boundless. So even when we do just one, when we do just one practice such as metta, really threaded throughout that practice are the other three. So you find through your instinct, through your understanding, as you move from recipient to recipient, there are shadings of compassion, there are shadings of sympathetic joy, and always there is the understanding of equanimity, which is the foundation. So let's sit together for a few minutes. You can dedicate this sitting to the welfare, the happiness, the safety, the peace of all beings everywhere, so that the effort we make in the purification of our own hearts and the extension of loving kindness 
help bring a safe and peaceful world. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.